by discussing um, some of the conversation about beauty and what is beauty, how do we define beauty uh, in terms of what we see, what we hear, uh, and utilizing our, our senses that God has uh, given to us. And I, I want to talk more about that today. I want to talk about what it means to understand that in light of what God has uh, called us to as a people who are uh, sub-creators. And I want to define that a little bit more uh, as well this morning. Um, now, I think, uh, hopefully, what we've been able to uh, think a little bit about together has been this reality that all of us, uh, we recognize beauty. We see something, we understand that it's beautiful, uh, and yet, if you stop to try and think about it, you might struggle a little bit to define uh, all of the elements that go into that to make something beautiful. Why? Why do we look at certain things and have a sense that uh, this is something that is beautiful, and vice versa, that we would look at something and say that it's not beautiful? In my mind, it's a lot easier to identify why something is not beautiful uh, than it is to identify that something is. But inherently, we all have an understanding that beauty exists, uh, that beauty is an important part of, uh, of being human, of living life in this world, uh, because ultimately, and we'll get more into this, we have a God who created us who is all beautiful. And as he communicates himself to us through uh, general revelation especially, uh, we see something of his beauty in his creation. And when we say his creation, we're talking about all things. All things are created by the all-beautiful God, and therefore we inherently recognize beauty where it exists because he is making himself known to us through that very means. Now, of course, we live in a fallen world, and as a result, uh, we see that uh, because of the fallenness, that which is beautiful is sometimes marred, is sometimes it doesn't come to us as beautiful. In a, in a perfect environment, in a perfect non-fallen creation, uh, I, don't, I don't think that there is ugly and, and that's, that's something that maybe is even hard to grasp, that we would ever, in the same way, it's very difficult for me, and probably me especially, if I consider my own heart, to think of a world in where sin doesn't exist. Imagine a world where, uh, where ugly doesn't exist. And I don't mean ugly as in like southern, you know, telling your kids they're being ugly or whatever. Uh, I mean ugly as in like, something you hear or something you see, uh, that that doesn't exist. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? So <clears throat> let's think more about this, though, about what is beauty, how is it functional, why does it matter? Now, what is, um, what is the... If we talk about order, what is the opposite of order? Because we have an orderly God, right? We have a God who is concerned with order in, in everything to include our worship. We read about that in the scriptures. He created in an orderly way. So what's the, what's the opposite of order? Chaos, right? 
The opposite of order is a home with children in it. It's chaos, right? Everything is wild all the time. And at the end of the day, in terms of, the cre- of creation, the Lord's design is not chaos. It is order. And so if we think about the, the cosmos, creation... God created this with a sense of order and structure and systems and standards, uh, things, that, uh, things that function the way they do. I, uh, I am a believer in systems, and, uh, and I think that is not just as a result of you know, some kind of model that works, but I think it works because God's created the world to work in that way, that we need systems, we need structure, we need order, because this is an orderly creation. Um, Chaos is unintelligible. When things are chaotic, there's no way to determine what's what, whether up is up and down is down and black is black and white is white. All of these things uh, are unintelligible, even to the extent that while hardcore scientists who hate God recognize in order to all things, they will recognize that there has to be at least what they call the theory of order. Well, they don't want to go as far as identifying where that order comes from. In their minds, we went from complete chaos to instant order, which to me takes a whole lot more to believe than, uh, than the fact that God created. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so as we, as we think about beauty, I think it's helpful to think about it in relationship to order, that there is order in an orderly universe, and as such, um, we, we can at least start to narrow in on something of a definition or helping us to understand how we recognize beauty. One of the ways we recognize beauty is through order. I think, back to some of our earlier conversations, one of the reasons we struggle to identify whether something of uh, modern art, contemporary art, is often beautiful is because it appears chaotic. And so whether or not that's the case is is a whole different discussion, but we can look at something more objectively, like a, uh, a portrait or a landscape. And the more it resembles reality, the more likely we are to identify that uh, that piece of art is beautiful because we have order. Versus something that appears to be more chaotic or random, we struggle with identifying whether or not it is beautiful. And so I think that part of it is, is very much one of the things that, that draws us to identify something as beautiful. Um, now, a lot of uh, this, uh, I hesitate to even bring this up, but a lot of studies have been done uh, where trying to figure out how is it that people identify whether someone else, another person, is beautiful or not to them. And so studies have been done. They sit people down and they show them one image after the other. 
And, uh, and, you know, it's like old 90s hot or not, if you're familiar with that, or I guess today it's Tinder swiping left or right. Um, you just look at the picture very quickly and determine whether or not you think that person is beautiful. It's yes or no. And they've done this. They'll show someone thousands of images, and then they've done this with thousands of people, and then they want to compare what is it that everyone sees as beautiful and the one indicator that comes out most prominently in all of that is that they are symmetrical, that their faces are, are symmetrical, uh, that they're not sort of, you know, one eye is higher than the other or whatever, their, their nose is straight or, you know. Now, I don't want everyone to be self-conscious. You're all beautiful people, some more than others, but you're all beautiful people, right? But this, this I think, speaks to the very thing. That we have a sense of order because the world's created orderly by an all-beautiful God. And beauty is, in part, defined by, uh, by order and beauty in that. Now, there is a biblical example of this, so I'm not just giving you scientific study. What's the biblical example of one who was more symmetrical than the other, and so one was identified beautiful and the other identified as less than beautiful. Huh? Yes. Rachel and Leah. Remember? Imagine fellas waking up next to the wrong woman. And not only is she the wrong woman, <laughs> she's uh, not very symmetrical, <laughs> is what <laughs> the Bible alludes to, right? <laughs> And so even in that, there's a recognition in the scriptures of one's, uh, of physical beauty, that we recognize that. And so we, we have a tendency as Christians, you know, we don't want to, um, and certainly we shouldn't seek to, um, to hurt people or to, uh, to be rude or, or mean or identify, you know, to walk around telling people, well, you're, uh, you're ugly, especially compared to so-and-so or whatever. Uh, but there is a recognition that we identify beauty, that we recognize beauty in people physically, not just um, all the other things that matter far more. Now, we're not saying it, it, it matters more than anything else. It certainly doesn't. In terms of evaluating a person and their worth, their physical beauty is of least importance. But that doesn't mean it's not important at all. That We ought to see some... Uh, it, it, it's valuable to us, in, uh, especially in our relationships, especially in our, uh, our marital relationships. Um, that's, that's a factor that we take into account, whether we admit it or not, <laughs> that there is some level of attraction that takes place. And so the difficulty I think that we run into in thinking through the arts is identifying all of these things about beauty. And that's certainly something of, of visual, but this, this idea of randomness implies chaos, and creative chaos is impossible ultimately in a created world. And so ultimately there is no art form that is completely chaotic. It's not possible because of the world that we live in. It's in a closed system, and everything within that closed system has been created and has been provided to us by God. 
And so the primary value of art and whether or not it ought to be deemed useful and beautiful is rooted in mankind being created in the image of God to be creators ourselves. And we see the value in the arts because we ourselves have value as sub-creators. Now, as we've said, art is functional in everyday life. It's never created out of complete randomness. Even a piece of art that looks like it was random or sounds like it's random, at the very least, was composed with some thought given to the work that's being done. Uh, Even the most, even if, as some people assume, it's not generally the case, but even if uh, a, a painter just throws up a canvas on the wall and just picks up cans of paint and tosses them against the wall. Um, Whether or not that's art is one discussion, but that's not random. What's not random about that? Okay, the fact that the artists themselves determine this is what I'm going to do, right? So that element of randomness is, is taken out. What else? Yeah, what color am I going to pick up next, right? Uh, What size of a canvas am I going to do this on? So we start to remove those elements right away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're right. Right, so even, even trying to define it as random is within a closed system where that could even be recognized as such. So we see very quickly that the idea that randomness exists in a closed system, in a created world, is, uh, is a foolish notion. And so art, even its most rudimentary and abstract form, begins in the mind of the artist. And if it begins in my mind, then it's not random, it's not chaotic. But it has to exist first in my mind or it will never exist at all. Because I'm not brought to a place to, to do that. And so all of this gets into uh, this language. We've used it a bit, and I want to spend time talking about it today, as us being sub-creators. Now, this is a, this is a term that was, um, that was coined by J.R.R. Tolkien, who most of you uh, probably know from The Lord of the Rings. Uh, but Tolkien... Um, outside of the Lord of the Rings, which was obviously his most significant work, he wrote a lot of other things, and in that um, he wrote a lot about these sorts of ideas. How does a man uh, develop in his own mind and then writes for the world to be enamored by uh, for many years after entire worlds that have never existed, uh, that this, this fantasy world that he has created with all of its uh, races of creatures and and places and everything else. Well, he wrote a lot about that um, in a more academic way, but in that, he wrote about um, what art is and how it comes to fruition by identifying that we, as human beings, are inherently uh, sub-creators. And what we mean by that is we have a creator, God, who's created all things. He's created us in His image. And as those are who create, are created in the image of the Creator... We have creativity within us. And that creativity comes out in all shapes and forms based on the gifts that God has given us. We have an inherent desire to create. 
Now, for you, that may not be drawing or painting or music or film or, or uh, drama or whatever, but on some level, you have a desire to create. And uh, now, uh, what Tolkien wrote about all of this was, was rooted in uh, more uh, classical theology, um, Thomas Aquinas, and even the, the philosophy of Aristotle uh, comes into play here. But I think, uh, and I, I want to try and show us uh, biblically, that it is a, a biblical concept. Um, now, his, his theology of creation was very extensive with a lot of implications, but the main feature that is consistent throughout is that, it, that God is the cause of being of all things, and as a result, all things are dependent on Him, even in our creative endeavors. Right now, when we hear a piece of music, who do we give credit for for that piece of music? What's that? Mozart, Mozart or whoever. <laughs> it's all Mozart, yeah. Uh, whoever, whoever the musician is, right? The composer. They are given the credit. And as they should, right? <clears throat> but what understanding as a sub-creator, what we need to understand is that they were able to do that only because they're created in the image of a creative God. And so, yes, they composed that piece of music. And God... Uh, and God would acknowledge that, and we see that all throughout the Bible, the artists are recognized for the beautiful creations that they create, and yet only able to do that because of who God is and what he created them to do. So here's where, to me, this gets even more interesting, is that God is the creator of all things, the source of all being, but he's not only the creator of all things that exist in actuality, he is also the source of all that is potential. So, before you even have a thought about creating something as a sub-creator, that thought, the potential for you to have that thought, had to be given by God. So you don't even have potential thoughts without the work of God. So nothing that exists in reality, I think we would all acknowledge, but nothing that exists potentially exists apart from the creative power and activity of God, who is the ultimate creative source of all being. If you think of um, uh, John, John's gospel in, in uh, chapter 1, my Bible will open here, um, and verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so what's John talking about here? Well, we tend to read that and simply think about physical existence. But he says here, without him was not anything made that was made. And in this, there's an implication that in order for it to be made, something had to happen beforehand. Before you draw your stick figure picture, you had to do something beforehand. You had to have a concept in your mind of what that was going to look like. Now, whether or not it turns out that way is a whole different, that's a different conversation, but the fact that the, you had the potential in your mind for this to exist 
where does that come from? It's not random. It's not chaotic. This exists because God deems that it shall exist. And so there's no way in which we conclude that any of the arts are ever random or unintentional. Um, If God is sovereign over all things, and I think we all believe that, um, that includes everything that seems imaginary or potential. Um, Tolkien wrote this. He said, In every world, on every plane, all must ultimately be under the will of God. And I think if we have a view of God's sovereignty over all things, we certainly want to um, acknowledge that. So, as sub-creators, we imagine, we create... We draw, we paint, we make music, we write literature, we write films, we, we act, whatever it is that we do in the arts, all of these things we do, and we do them in innovative ways, in new ways, in different ways than we've seen before, but none of it is ex nihilo. What does ex nihilo mean? Out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, and, you know, I think uh, I, I understand where you're going with that in terms of uh, the terminology that we would, uh, that in some way. I think the, the idea, um, and you'll find, I think maybe um, Kuiper talks about this, maybe Bavink a bit, um, the same kinds of concepts. And whether or not the language is the same uh, may be different, but... Um, but trying to find a way to identify that in this created world that God allows us to create and innovate and all that, and yet understanding all of that, as you're saying, falls under the sovereign work of God, that none of it exists apart from his work, none of it exists apart from his allowing, none of it exists apart from his providing. Um, And so um, in the same, well, no, I wouldn't say in the same way, Um, In other words, I can't do anything I do apart from God's sovereign decree. And so whether or not I think this is something I've done, and and many artists in the world would assume this is all me doing all of this, regardless of my assumptions about that, as a Christian I have to recognize anything I do, any note I play on the piano, any picture I draw on the page, that, that comes from God even giving me the mind for the potential that it would exist, even giving me the ability and the materials in order for it to exist. And so I think I agree we have to be careful in how we talk about that, but recognizing that none of it, and that's, that's what I'm getting at, none of it happens ex nihilo because God has to be the source, uh, the fount of all things. Mark? Yeah, because they want to be the source, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. I mean, there's a movie about a clown and the clown's not nice? (laughs) Yeah, Derek. Great, excellent. And I I think that's an important part because a lot of what we see, I think Mark had brought this up a a few weeks ago, 
um, that people want to classify as art, we would identify as Christians and say, that's not art. In fact, that's a perversion of the created order and what God intends to be viewed as good and beautiful and true. And so you look at something like pornography. No, please don't look at something like pornography. <laughs> Let me say that rightly. Um, but you identify what it is, and some people would want to try and argue whether or not that is art. Well, as Christians, we don't even need to entertain that conversation because we know outright it's not. It's a perversion of what God has created in terms of the created order and what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to communicate. And so we should never entangle ourselves even in, uh, in contemplating whether or not that is something that we can try to define as art because of uh, what Derek is saying. We're elevating uh, the fleshly, sinful desires of man and trying to justify that those can be indulged by simply saying that, well, it's art. And you see the same kind of thing, and oftentimes Christians will try to justify all of that uh, as, as they see um, uh, tremendous amounts of uh, nudity and gratuitous violence and everything in, in the movies we watch, and the, the shows that we watch, all these things. We need to be mindful of that. We need to be thoughtful about that. At this, there comes a point where it isn't, it isn't art because what is it doing? It's exalting man over God. It's not glorifying God, and it is only enticing the fleshly desires. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that's, I mean... If you start to uh, read the literature, especially in the academic world, which is a cesspool of garbage itself, um, these are the conversations that people are having. This is what all of our federal dollars goes to pay for people to study. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so what you're getting at, Tris, is the heart of this is that there's a major moral component to this, isn't there? That how we think about the arts has a major moral component to it. Uh, everything that we, everything that we, I, I, um, that we involve ourselves in this world. Why? Because we have been given the law of God and the order of God and uh, have been created within that and therefore understand that things are to be a certain way and are not to be a certain way. And so whether we want to uh, claim that we don't believe certain things, uh, we, we still do. <laughs> we simply do. Um, and these, these, are, these are objective realities. And so if you think about the ideas of uh, like an atheist, they want, to, they want to claim that everything is absolutely subjective. There is no objectivity to the world. It's all subjective. Um, but they can't account for that because according to their worldview, the existence of raw materials, the creation of sound or the innate understanding that something sounds pleasing to the ear or invokes powerful emotion in the heart, that they're all just random coincidences or they're entirely subjective. But why is it that all of us can look at the same image and say, that's beautiful, 
And all of us can look at the same image and say, that's not beautiful if everything is entirely subjective in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Exactly. Good. And it goes, goes back to our discussion on postmodernism, right? If a postmodernist calls Pizza Hut and orders a pepperoni pizza, and the delivery driver shows up with, God help you if you put pineapple on your pizza with anchovies, who in, no one's going to open that and say, well, it's not what I ordered, but that's how you interpreted that's what I ordered according to the way you use language, so I'm going to eat it. And as I eat it, I'm going to tell myself I'm eating a pepperoni pizza. Nobody does that, right? Never put pineapple on your pizza. That's the point of what I'm saying. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, <clears throat> what's that? It's not beautiful. And we can objectively say that. <laughs> so... As we think about this, think about the nonsensical things like what Richard Dawkins would say. Richard Dawkins, you probably know, acclaimed atheist. He says this, quote, The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And so he's, going, he's basing that off of what Charles Darwin posited, which was this. He said, quote, One general law leading to the advancement of all organic beings, namely, multiply, vary, let the strongest live, and the weakest die. <coughs> and so what they would say about art and creation is that all of it is just simply uh, a, a variation on what we do as a means of survival. And so for the Christian thought, for biblical understanding of all of this, it leads us to a view of art that is that beauty is noble, beauty is virtuous, beauty is moral, because beauty communicates something to us about who God is, what God has done, and what God continues to do. Because God is all beautiful and has created all things to reflect that beauty back to him, to bring glory to him. And so we can outrightly reject the nonsensical statements of one like a Richard Dawkins or Charles Darwin who would say that it's just what they're saying. It's randomness and it, there is no moral component to any of it. It just comes together. But for, for our thinking about that, visual art, music, poetry, storytelling, it's not just some helpful means to survive. It's, in view, it's infused with an objective reality to assist in determining its value and its beauty that we might bring glory to God in its use. And we ought to bring glory to God in its use. And we see that all through the scriptures. We see the artists, the artisans, all throughout the Bible. Why were they appointed? The very first class we did, we looked at that, right? That God had the artists appointed to, uh, to create the temple, to, um, to make all of, the, all of the furniture of the temple, uh, to, to write the songs, to write the music, to play the music. Oh, did, was God indifferent to how these things were done? 
No, not at all. In fact, quite the opposite, right? Do you ever get reading through some of those? Listen, you're human. I get it. You don't have to pretend like you're more spiritual than everyone else. You ever read some of those details and you're like, all right, get on with it, right? You're just so detailed about what everything is going to look like and what materials we're going to use and what measurements they're going to be and everything, right? This is all very specific. Why? Because God cares about what we're seeing, what we're experiencing, what we're hearing, and it all needs to be beautiful. And how is that defined? It's defined by what He determines it's going to be, not by us determining what it's going to be. And so it's not random, and it's not chaotic. It is very much orderly. Now, that being said, some artists are obviously able to create in ways that are more effective in portraying reality or expressing beauty than others are. Right? Again, as Christians especially, we are more drawn to that which we're going to look at and say is, uh, is a depiction of something in reality, right? And the closer it is to reality, the more we identify it as, as beautiful. And so there is a, a, there's a distinction to be made. There is a, there's a scale, if you will. So it's in the same way that not everyone who knows how to shoot a basketball can play uh, like Michael Jordan, Right? There's, there's no comparison. Um, just because you can paint a picture doesn't mean you can paint the Sistine Chapel in the way that Michelangelo did. Or because you can play notes on the piano doesn't mean you're a Thelonious monk. And so there's all these distinctions that need to be made that while we, uh, while we may be able to, to make something and identify that it was done creatively, it was done intentionally, it was done with the materials that God's provided, there are variations now that we have to think about in terms of the skills and the gifts that God has given to people. Notice in the scriptures, when people are appointed to do these things, it's not just, hey, go out in the streets and grab the next person who's interested in doing this job, is it? Who are they looking for? The best, the most skilled artisans, the ones who know what they're doing and have been given the gifts to do it, <laughs> right? I, I think of, uh, so our nice little, um, what is that, paisley? Is that what that's called? What is the design up there? What? Filigree. Filigree? Okay, I'll take your word for it. <clears throat> so when we had that done, um, some of you remember Adam Mayhew, he did that. Adam is an incredible artist. Um, I wasn't about to get up there and try to do that because if I did that, you would have some squiggly lines and some random, uh, I shouldn't say random, some uh, splatters of paint that didn't look like they were doing what they were supposed to do. It wouldn't look like that, right? I remember the first day I walked in and saw that, I was, I was impressed, I was amazed. Adam did all of that without, uh, without any kind of, I mean, I... I think how I might do it is get an overhead and project it up there and trace it or something like that. It still wouldn't look that good. He did it all freehand. He didn't do anything other than just get up there. and uh, If you see some of the work that, that Heather Cole does, it's incredible. And you just look at it and you're amazed. I, don't even, I can't even visualize doing that, let alone actually creating it, right? 
So there's, there's, there's skill, there's gift, there's talent involved in the same way that we have all of these other gifts that God has given to the church, right? As I said in our sermon last week, talking about music in the church, there's a reason why we don't just take turns rotating through helping our, our musicians to lead in the singing. Listen, I, we want everyone in here to sing during worship and to sing loudly and joyfully unto the Lord, but some of you, we don't ever want you to be near a microphone. Please, don't ever go near a microphone. Right? Why? Because we're trying uh, to maintain what the Lord desires in the worship, is that it's not a distraction, right? And that it is, it is beautiful, and that as we're being led, that we're being led to do the right things and not to be focused on the wrong things. And so we want it to be helpful, right? Now, there's a reason why, while this is beautiful, while it's also simple, so that when we look up there, our attention is not just on whatever that is. If it's some elaborate mural that captures our attention and now every time we come in, we're finding a new element to it that uh, we didn't see before and we're just spending all of our time trying to find Waldo in the big mural. Right? We don't, we don't want it to be distracting, but it aids in what we're trying to do. It provides some kind of... Uh, it provides... Uh, a layer of beauty for us as we, uh, as we look up at the screen. Now, in the same way, I was uh, this year, earlier this year, I was preaching at another church, and the pastor, uh, he talked to me afterwards. We often do this kind of thing. He said, you know, so what are some of the things you noticed about our church that you, you liked or you want to challenge us to think about changing whatever else? And I told him, I said, you know, <clears throat> it's not a big deal. However... When I walked into their worship space, someone tried to like decorate the space and they had these like old wicker baskets with fake orange flowers and they were like just like nailed to the wall every so often. They looked awful. Like my grandma made stuff look better than that and it was terrible then. And they were all dusty and gross and you know I just said this this when I walk in and I see this, my instant reaction is that um, they don't care that it's, uh, it's old and dusty here, and I assume something from that, that maybe everything that goes on here is old and dusty and dead. In the same way, remember I said R.C. Sproul talked about if your church smells as you walk in, if it smells old and rotten, then what does that communicate to me about what's going on on the inside? These things matter. They matter. You don't know how many times I've contemplated what are, why we have fake trees on there. Whether that's a good thing or not. What, is it, what does it say or not say? Uh, is it a distraction or is it a help? All of those kinds of questions that we have to ask. Yeah. I appreciate when we have the music up there. Yeah, that, that there, there is something that goes on that is, is taking our attention, that away from the primary focus, Right? Um, oh, my goodness, time. All right, we're done. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you again so much for our time, for giving us the opportunity to think deeply about things that we experience every single day and yet uh, don't often pause to give thought to. I pray this is helpful to all of us, whether or not our particular uh, love in life is to consider all of the elements of the arts this is a part of what you have created, 
It is a part of what you've created in us. It is what you create utilizing us. And so it's important that we think about these things as with all things in light of who you are and what you have done and are doing. And so may it be of use to us. May we be more thoughtful Christians in every aspect and element of life and how we experience life to your glory. Prepare our hearts now that we might worship you in spirit and in truth for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.